The following message by Alistair Begg is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. Well, I, I, I actually, I, I, if I had my druthers, we wouldn't do this. Because, but no, expressly this evening, because I, I, I felt like I would like to uh, just go out and uh, walk once entirely around the building to assimilate uh, God's Word to us. And I, 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 would, I, would, uh, I would find this a really disappointing thing if in the brief time that we have now, anything that would be said or volunteered by myself or anybody else that would detract from uh, the benefit and blessing that we have received uh, from um, our, our colleagues here, from Colin and uh, from him today. Now, I don't say that uh, for the other, the, uh, Colin and the other guy. And uh, um, Okay, let's have a prayer. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Lord, you search us, and you know our hearts. Uh, It would be foolish for us to pretend before you in any way. And so we pray that beyond our expectations, you might bless to us these moments. We're glad to be in each other's company. Uh, We come to the evening hour in light of all of the hours that have preceded it today, all of the opportunities for friendship and fellowship, all of the occasions when we've been able to sit under the teaching of your Word. And we thank you for all of that. And we pray that uh, you will orchestrate all that unfolds now to the glory of your name. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, then, with that said and understood, and I'm sure that shared, uh, three of the fellows here have microphones. And the, 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 the program that we've used in the past is very straightforward. Uh, you may ask any question that you choose, and I can answer any question that I want. They may not necessarily be the same thing. And um, if, if, you are, if you're not clear about what your question is, then don't start and try and figure it out over the, the next five minutes or so. And uh, in the interests of uh, the well-being of everyone— if you can make it as brief as possible, and try and hold me to uh, giving brief responses so that we can have as much uh, interaction as, as possible. All right? So I did, I did have a question here, but in order to answer it, I need still another piece of information, and so I won't track that yet. Um, so who, who would like to begin? It's, uh, if you have questions for Herschel, I'll bring him up here as well. And uh, Yep. Yes, sir. Alistair, uh, you need to be singularly focused. That's obvious in your ministry. But even with uh, Jeff Mills and your whole host of wonderful staff, uh, you must have a lot of distractions. So how do you stay singularly focused on preaching and in your responsibilities? Okay. You all heard that. How do you stay focused with all the different distractions? Um, Well, because... The, the primary focus of, of all that I uh, do, whether it's in the, in the pulpit uh, Sunday by Sunday or in any other opportunities that are given to me, are all directly related to the Scriptures. And so um, I, I just I feel under both the, 
the duress of that in some ways, and the burden of it, if you like, but also that's the great enjoyment for me to study the Scriptures. And Sunday-by-Sunday ministry um, helps to keep us honest. As uh, my colleagues have been saying, you know, when you're any length of time in a place, then your congregation, they know you well enough. You can't con them. You can't impress them. And um, so, the, the, the the responsibility to study the Bible in order to be able to um, feed feed the flock is, uh, in some ways, it's, a, it's almost a kind of maternal responsibility. That the the demand of it is what 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 allows our wives or our mothers to stay so focused in providing these meals for us, while they feel both the privilege and the responsibility. And I guess that's that's how I would answer that. This is not a theologically deep question, but I really don't mean it to be a trite question either. To my great surprise, I found I've become something of an old-fashioned kind of fellow in, in the real minority. I've said for years that when the weatherman and newscaster stopped wearing a tie, then I would stop wearing a tie because I felt my message was at least as important as theirs. And I even said to people, Alistair Begg's still wearing a tie, so I'm going to still wear one. And then to my great surprise, when I got a television and could tune into your services, I found you weren't wearing one either. I also heard you say that when you were ordained, you were wearing a collar, so you've changed your attire at one point. Last year, I declared a summer of no tie in our church, and my congregation was delighted. And so could you just speak briefly to the subject of informal attire versus conveying the weight and the seriousness of our message? Good. Good, good, good. Um, the person you really ought to ask that to is uh, Lawson, right? Because <laughs> Lawson has a tie in his pajamas, for sure. <laughs> and um, that's, <laughs> I, I say it with great respect. But that is that that is actually that is that is a, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure how quite to answer it. First of all, I I take the weight of walking up to the pulpit very seriously, whatever my dress. You know, it, it, it's it's this is no trivial thing. That that walk from over there to there on a Sunday for me is a lot longer of a walk than people would ever realize if they could see inside of me what's going on. So whether I'm wearing a suit, which I like to do more than anything else, just by dint of what I like to do, or whether I'm dressed as I am now, um, it, it's, not, it's not something that I am unduly concerned about. Some of my colleagues, I think, would wish that I did not ever really um, you know, dress in that way. Um, but it's none of their business, so I dress in as I choose. And um, the only, the the, the only, um, the only thing I would do is if if I felt that by either what I was doing one way or the other, it was a detriment to the fulfilment of the task, then I would of course be prepared to adopt to the expectations of the the culture. I mean, I could also show up on Sunday wearing my kilt as well. (laughs) 
which would be regarded by some as a mark of absolute foolishness and by others as a mark of respect. I mean, the, 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 yeah, what's going on inside of us is more important than what, that's what's covering us. But I do take that seriously. But I allow myself freedom because the context in which I minister gives me freedom. If, uh, if that were not the case, then I wouldn't. But I mean, a big thing in Scotland, you talk about me talking about Scotland, I mean, the, the, big, uh, the big issue in Scotland was we wore clerical collars in the morning, but we just wore a suit and tie in the evening. So wh- why not? I mean, what's, what's the difference between the morning and the evening? I mean, there's no— the Lord has not got a special section for anything before noon, and then after that, you know, you can wear your, you can wear your cutoffs. Um, and then you go to the West Coast, where all the Calvary Chapel guys, they all have, they all have those Hawaiian shirts and uh, sandals. That's weird. I mean, that's— <laughs> um, I love the music here. It's always so uplifting and encouraging and honoring to Christ. My question is, uh, we've been wrestling with this at our church for months. Uh, what do you do with a really good song published by— people with bad theology, where do you draw a line in the sand of songs that can be sung here and songs that cannot be sung here? Uh, the question was, what do, what do you do with a good song that has come from a bad place? Um, well, we operate with—I would say we operate with a severe caution in relationship to that. But we do not allow ourselves to miss out on a good lyric— just because of guilt by association. So, for example, some of our songs, um, the Lion and the Lamb song, I'm not sure if it showed up on the screen what it was accredited to, did it? It didn't? Okay. But— Pardon? Okay. Yeah. And I don't know what it said on the screen. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, Brenton. So, Brenton's my friend. And, and that was a good song, I thought. The fact that it was published in a certain environment is not as big an issue to me. But it is to some people, and we're sensitive to that. But our approach to it, I think, is fairly straightforward. We're looking for, we're looking for lyrics that uh, live within the framework of uh, a biblical theology and a melody line that is singable. And we are cautious. We I mean, I would say of some of those concerns, I would say I share those concerns, but I don't share necessarily the same conclusion. Someone says, because of that, therefore we can't sing that. I would say, because of that, we are cautious, but we're still going to sing it. Yeah. Okay. Where are we? Yep. Alistair, I understand that pastoral ministry, um, as a senior pastor, it—, it, it it just intertwines all your whole life, every aspect of your life. Um, I don't want this question to be trivial to you, but I read a book by Bob Russell. It said, after 50 years of ministry, seven things that I would change if I had to do it all over again. Tell me one thing about your ministry, knowing that it encompasses every part of your life, that you would change. I would pray more in private. You just wanted one thing. 
Uh, similar to that. Uh, Sorry, hang on. Um, similar to that, maybe two things. Uh, that... <laughs> Uh, look, looking back, uh, if you could go back and talk to yourself starting out in ministry or starting at Parkside, um, what, are, what are two things you might uh, tell yourself if you had the opportunity to go back to young Alistair? Apart from pray more, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not one. Don't be in such a hurry. Don't be, don't be so anxious to get to everything or fix anything or develop anything. Um, Slow down. Get a sense of what's going on around you. Listen to people who have been around for a while. Look for the people that will um, give you encouragement as a young person, but who will, in that encouragement, be prepared to you know, poke you when they see any rising arrogance or self-confidence. Uh, that'd be one thing. And and I think along with that, if I look back on things, who was it? Was it Colin or was it Herschel with the pig story? Who did the pig story? The pigs. Herschel did it. Are you awake, Herschel? Are you still hear me? <laughs> It was sheep. Oh, it was. <laughs> Sorry, I was actually asleep during that, and <laughs> Jeff told me it was pigs. <laughs> no, the, 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 the thing, the thing with the sticks, <laughs> right? So, learning, learning that, you, that if you're going to really lead, you have to lead from the front. You can't be driving people. And I think as I look back, the, uh, I was in the early days, and it goes partly along with the idea of, come on, come on. It's, it's very hortatory in my—or hortatory, as you say— um, um, very hortatory in saying, come on now, you know, let's go. This is it. What are you doing? Where are you? All that kind of thing. That never—and looking back on it, I say, well, why are, you, why are you being like that with people? You've got you to calm down, and you've got to listen. You've got to learn. You've got to walk in front of them. Don't, don't try and drive them from behind, because it's not, it's not going to accomplish anything of any kind of lasting value. I think that was two things. Uh, thanks for the conference, and thanks for taking questions. Uh, some people talk about uh, we should present the gospel with the main emphasis. So one emphasis is that Jesus is king. You know, the, the kingship of Jesus is the emphasis. The other is like salvation of sins. You know, Christ died for sins. Do you think it's appropriate to talk about the gospel with a main emphasis? And if so, would you say kingship of Jesus or salvation for sinners? Well, I mean, this is the great... What is the story of the gospel? The story is that God, that God uh, uh, from all eternity, has come to seek out a people that are his own. Those people are rebels, and because of his love, he has sent Jesus, that Jesus is 
are the one who comes to save. So the, the panoramic story of the gospel um, we approach from all, all kinds of angles. I mean, um, and this again is where when we're expounding Scripture, the Scripture will guide us in the right direction. Uh, Jesus uh, fulfills the role of both prophet, priest, and king um, as, uh, as, as he, is the, he is the Word of God. He is the sacrifice of God. He is the king who's come to reign. And we can't proclaim the gospel of the amazing love of God without explaining the extent of his love, which has to make a propitiation for sins. And um, I thought that—I uh, don't know if you were here for Sunday night, were you? Well, you should get the, get the tape from Sunday night and listen to Colin's work, and, and you'll find, I think, a wonderful treatment there that would be a far better answer to your question than I'm struggling to give you right now. And it's not a cop-out on my part. I, I mean that most sincerely. Yeah. Um, as someone who is new in the ministry and very young, I'm trying to kind of find my way. So a theme that I've seen among a lot of pastors is um, pride. So what are just some practical ways that you have found are helpful in dealing with pride, especially as it comes to communicating with um, the people that you work with? Well, I had an Irish friend who used to say, you know, every pastor needs a wife, if for no other reason than to keep him humble. And um, that is a very, very important role, that um, we want our wives to love us and appreciate us. We, I don't want my wife going around, my, pa- my pastor is Alistair. I love his sermons. I mean, I'm like, What? stop that right now. She never once said that in her life. <laughs> she, no, she told me she liked David Jeremiah's voice better than mine. <laughs> I don't care. I like his voice better than mine as well. But look, hum- humility, in, uh, I don't know who it was. It was one or two guys. But uh, Humility is not is something about if you if a guy says he can't play the piano, and 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 you say he can't play the piano, then he's not being humble. He's just being a pain in the neck. That was the thing. Yeah, there were no pigs in that part. There was there nothing. Um, um, you know, humility is the awareness of the fact that that we're not the center of the story. We're not even the center of our own story. Um, Humility is so hard, you know, because by nature we are self-assertive. And, but this is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word, Isaiah 66, 2. I mean, the, the stuff tonight about the toilets, that's important. I mean, not if I, one of my friends said to me, I'm going to start the ministry all over again, where are the toilets? That's what he said. I get that. So, God uses, God uses all kinds of things in order to, to achieve his objective. And it is striking in that passage, isn't it? It says, to keep me from getting a fat head. That's what he says. To keep me from getting a fat head, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, to keep me from becoming conceited. And if you think about that in relationship to Paul 
I mean, Paul was a heck of a guy, wasn't he? I mean, his background was phenomenal. His intellect was obviously great. He was physically strong. He might have got beaten up and so on. But, I mean, I think, I think the amount of time he mentions these things is because he understood he was wrestling with it himself. And um, I guess the question was, what, what are you supposed to do? Just don't take yourself too seriously is one thing. They don't, don't believe. You know, when I was a small boy, I've told this story many times, but I was a small boy. I was getting candy out of a store. My mother had made me presentable because I was going to an event with my father. He allowed me to get sweets because it had nothing to do with um, a church service. And I was in getting the sweets, and there were adults. It's a long time ago where you didn't pick your own stuff up, but the people poured them out of jars and put them in paper and, then, and weighed them, um, uh, you know, a quarter of this and a quarter of that. And what must have happened while I was in there was that um, some of the adults in the room probably said complimentary things about me. I was just, I was just the only little boy in the room. And I assume they must have said something like, oh, you're a very, you look very nice today, son, or your hair is nice, or whatever. It's all full of bro cream. I can't imagine how bad it looked. But um, whatever happened, when the, the rest of the people exited the shop, and I was left with a lady, and when the lady handed the, the sweets to me over the counter, she said to me, son, flattery is like perfume. Sniff it. Don't swallow it. And I've never, ever forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. And so, in pastoral ministry, it, it, I think—and this is, again, the value of your own congregation of a period of time, however long or short that is—that you can discount all the highs and discount all the lows. And you can look for somewhere just in the middle range where you know that people are not blowing smoke, nor are they looking for particular ways just to devalue you and make you feel— feel horrible. Good children as well. Children will help you. Somebody asked me today, uh, um, what, what would you say is the, the best book you've done? I said, I haven't done the—none. None. none. The guy said, oh, come on. I said, no, no, no. I said, my son said to me not long ago, hey, Dad, why don't you write a book that somebody wants to read? When they gave me they gave me a doctorate, I wish my mother was alive because I told her you don't need to study. They give you this stuff. But um, <laughs> the first group of poor souls that did it, Cedarville, and then I was out in California with my children, and we were eating out in Orange County, and again my son said to me, he said, "Hey, Dad." What was, what was that thing? What, what, did, what did they do about what, is some doctoral thing or something, he said? I said, yeah. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, but it, it wasn't exactly Dartmouth, you know? And he goes, I love it when you say that. That's good. That's what helps me. You're not blowing your horn. Ronald Reagan go to Simi Valley, go to the Reagan Library, go in the Oval Office, 
listen as Reagan speaks through your earphones, and he describes the office, and he says, I never regarded this as my office. I regarded this as the office of the people. I took it so seriously. Come to your question again, brother. I took it so seriously that I never removed my suit coat when I was working in the office. And then there's a pause on the tape. And then he says, so you see, you can take the office seriously without taking yourself too seriously. And that, I think, is the, that's the real rub. And that's why we need people around us to, to um, burst the bubble of our incipient pride. Sometimes you can't get home at night. You know, your wife cannot get you through the bedroom because your head is trying to go, whoa, yeah, yeah. So she has to take the knitting needle, apply the surgery, and now you can come to bed. Can you give us a little insight, Alistair, on in the week-by-week uh, process when you and your music team are planning the order of worship, worship in song, just how, uh, how that process unfolds? Um, yeah, it's real simple. It's very simple. Um, uh, Ruth, who's been at the piano all the time, who is by training a nurse and by work a nurse, is what you would call—what do you call it when you're like a painter and a pastor? By— by Bivocational? Yeah, so she kind of like that. And she is a su- she's the sweetest soul, and she puts up with me something wicked, you know, because I'm not very planned, and so she has to wait on me. I le- somebody of a lesser stature than her would not be able to function with me. And, but over time— our minds and hearts and attitudes have melded together so that she knows where we're going with the text. She's reading that as the week goes on. The closer I get as I'm going, I'm making notes. I'm, I'm writing down hymns or songs that are in mind. And then by the time we get close to the end of the week, um, I have passed them on to her. She's come back to me with the thoughts that she's had. But all of these songs and everything that's being done now is all being done by the team. I only, I only asked for two songs out of all of them, but I, but I trust them entirely. But that's the process, a very simple process. Yeah. I was hoping somebody else would get up here in the middle section so I wouldn't have to ask this question. Um, what would be your response? And you can pass this off to Herschel if you want. Uh, this could be a big one coming up. <laughs> when your church leadership deeply wounds your wife and feels entirely above responsibility, how do you respond? Well, first of all, I've never lived that experience, for which I'm thankful. Um, I think the initial response of a spouse to the wounding of one's spouse, whether husband or wife, by anybody, is to jump immediately to their defense. And I think that that is both probably a legitimate immediate reaction and um, certainly understandable. The real issue in a circumstance like that is beyond the ability to really answer 
your question in this context, because what is the nature of the offense? What has happened? Why has it been done? What's going on? For me, just to take the sort of conceptually the idea of it and say something worthwhile, I don't know whether Colin or, or, or whether you would say uh, something in particular by way of response to that. I, I honestly, I, I don't know what to say without the specifics, because, because I might immediately go to the, to, to, to the defense of your wife. And, and I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is a, that is a, I, I get your question. It would be a disservice to you to try and answer it in this context. I'd be glad to talk to you about it. Uh, so just wondering, I listened to your sermons for years, and you quote a lot of uh, kind of classic writers. Who in the last, like, 20 years that's writing are you reading for sermon prep, be it commentary work or just kind of like somebody writing about a topic? Oh, golly. Um, well, if you take the stuff that I was doing on First and Second Samuel, I was reading John Woodhouse and his commentaries on First and Second Samuel, and then I was working from the, from the footnotes of his material to other Old Testament writers because that was what my focus was. Um, but, um, and so, and so, in terms of Jude, I'll be, um, I'll be using uh, uh, Lucas and Green. And maybe the best way to answer it is who are the who are the who are the series that 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 you you benefit from most, perhaps. You know, so the Bible speaks today, um, the Christian focus ones. Um, um, all, all of that material I'm, I'm accessing all the time. But I would say something just about this. I love to read. It's about the only thing I'm able to do. I mean, I don't have any particular talents, but I love to read. So if you were to come home with me, I mean, I'm just running out of space in my entire existence because of books. And that has to do with, like, murder mysteries. That has to do with the philosophy of Roger Scruton, who just died a couple of years ago. That has to do with reading Thomas Sowell on the nature of black America and the question of these things. That has to do with uh, the Icarus file by Len Dayton, which is an old book, uh, the Berlin story, again, about um, uh, the Cold War era. I'm fascinated by tons of things. I don't have enough time in my life to read all these things. But I'm not just reading—I don't read them to say, oh, I've got to get something out of here. But there's nothing that I read that I don't get something out of there. And so, from the very beginning, I've always annotated my books, and I've always filed things. And that file—so I don't look for illustrations Sunday by Sunday. I don't think, oh, golly, I've got to find something here now. If there's nothing there, I just leave it alone. But usually, because of the store pile that I've been creating through my life, I'm able to access things. Um, and, and that would be true also in terms of, of music, classically, and in terms of uh, rock and roll music. Yeah. Is that helpful? I don't know. Yeah. 
Alistair, thank you for your ministry. You've made a really big impact on me and a lot of my friends. Um, I've been reading John 17 and contemplating on it quite a bit. And Jesus' prayer for unity for his disciples and for the church of the future, us. In my experience, I've seen that the church does not experience that kind of unity, either in a communal sense or an individual sense. And I was wondering if you agreed with that, why you would say that was. Hmm. Well, the unity that exists in the body of Christ, Allah John 17, is a real unity. It's not an ecumenical unity. It's a familial unity, that our union with Christ unites us with all who are in Christ. The privilege, then, of bearing testimony to that has to be worked out, first of all, in individual local fellowships, so that a local fellowship will have the opportunity to learn to bear one another's burdens, to put up with one another, to tolerate one another, in the same way that uh, children in a nuclear family have to do the same thing. And the, the, the mystery of it is that, for example, there, there are people uh, here now, as I said earlier, from Kazakhstan, from Egypt, from Brazil, from Scotland, from England, from Ireland, from all over the place. We don't know one another, and yet we are united in the gospel. We don't have to we don't have to give up anything to express our partnership and so on. But if your question is, why can't it be far more like that before the watching world, then sure, yeah, we should be making more endeavors in order to make clear that things that may distinguish us of a secondary importance should be sublimated under our unity in the gospel, the kind of unity that Whitfield, you know, made much of as he, as he came, uh, you know, through, uh, through the States, because the people that were back in England were criticizing him for some of the places that he was preaching. He was stepping beyond the boundaries. And Dallimore, in his, uh, in his two volumes on Whitfield, makes the point that, that what was happening there was that Whitfield was establishing, without really understanding it, um, the essence of evangelical unity, that it is a unity that, ex- that actually exists. Should we do better at showing it to the world? Definitely. But all of the ecumenical attempts at unity are just, are, are just flim-flam, because without the essential union with Christ, all, of, all the other things that you can do um, really don't, they don't account for anything at all. You don't have anybody up the middle here, Cameron, no? You just stand there? You should maybe ask a question. That's it. Sorry. <clears throat> you, uh, many years ago, you, you did a lecture on Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Mm-hmm. And you said that Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't know if he had ever truly preached. One of your sermons was published in Nancy Guthrie's uh, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. And it's a sermon titled Jesus Our Substitute. It was... Luke 22, in Christ in uh, Gethsemane. And I've, pr- I've went back to it probably quarterly over the last decade. And um, what I want to ask you is, do you, re- do you remember preaching that, that sermon in particular that was published? Um, Christ, 
Um, it was in your Luke series, but in, there's so many sermons. But Christ, uh, in his passion, in, in his substitution, bearing our sin. What I want to ask you is, would you say of your own preaching in those moments where um, the Holy Spirit is allowing you to preach with power, that you've approximated to truly preaching? And, and would you say that, that you know the difference in, in the moment, and that you feel that unction and that, and that power? Explain to us uh, if there's a distinction between an ordinary time and a sweet time of preaching and what that's like, or if it's just, or if it's just um, faithfully proclaiming over time the word and yeah. Uh, well, um, John MacArthur thinks that statement by MacArthur, by um, Lloyd Jones is nuts. Um, I know that because he told me. He said he said that uh, Lloyd Jones should not say that. I mean, he shouldn't have said that. I don't know if I've ever really preached. Now, that's only John's view. He, he, I think he thinks that because we all who heard Lloyd-Jones preach, as far as we're concerned, if, that, if he's never really preached, I don't know what it was we were listening to. Um, I would say that the routine Sunday-by-Sunday, week-by-week preaching of the Word, if I tried to analyze whether it was good, bad, ugly, moved, powerful, unpowerful, whatever, I'd be in an, I'd be in an asylum. So I, 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 when I was much younger, I used to agonize over that. And then, I, and then I suddenly realized it's the Word of God that does the work of God by the Spirit of God, that, that basically all you are is a farmer. You sow seed. That's what you do. Now, does, and I had a big discussion with Steve Lawson about this, about passion, because Lawson is all about—and I love Steve, incidentally. He and I are friends, and I've beaten him at golf quite a few times. But— um, <clears throat> Um, the, 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 he did this big thing, and we were at, we were at a seminary together, and, and someone asked a question about passion, and of course you know Steve. Steve is like, passion. It's about passion and the passion. If there's no passion, the passion. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> son of a. Which is like Piper as well. He's the same. You know, John's like, whoa. He's like, oh, what happened? You know. And I was, I was at John's house one time with David Wells, and I asked his son, one of his sons, I said, what age are you? He says, I'm 16. I said, did you get your driver's license? And he said, no. And I started pressed him a little bit. I said, well, you're 16. You got your driver's license. I mean, that's, that's a real rite of passage. And John's at the table, and he goes, listen, do you think in light of the cause of the gospel, it matters whether he has his driver's license? <laughs> I'm like, so, whoa. I was, just, I was just asking a simple question. So, how did I get there? Oh, yeah, passion, passion. So Steve did this whole thing about passion. And I said, well, I get that. I mean, in terms of engagement and everything else. But let's take the farmer analogy. So farmer has a seed. He sows seed. Now, does it matter whether he goes sowing seed, sowing seed, sowing seed, or, or sowing seed, sowing seed, sowing seed, sowing seed? If it's the seed that does it, what are you on about? To your question, 
the worst of times. Let me put it two ways around. One, I think in listening to my brothers, I had those moments as a listener. I don't know what was going on with them as the preacher. So I don't really care, actually. I mean, I care about their well-being. But they were doing—they were sowing. We're the field, right? So the worst of times is when you can hear yourself preaching or when you're listening to yourself preaching. The best of times is when you can't and you're not. And there, are no, there is no question that there are occasions when we have a sense of divine afflatus, where, whereby it becomes apparent, momentarily even, that, you know, God has decided just to uh, use that moment. But your initial question was, do you remember that sermon? And the answer is, no, I, I don't. But— um, Sorry, I got a little bit carried away there. It's uh, <laughs> Steve Lawson's fault. All right, <laughs> go. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The God Who Is There, in 1968. Is this your question? Yeah, I mailed it to you. Okay. Uh, he said, uh, the Christian should be about whatever the world and the devil are attacking at that moment in history. And then he quotes, if I remember right, it's Luther that basically said, you're not much of a Christian if you're not going after what the enemy is trying to work on in that time where you live. How do we preach expositorily in light of that admonition? Okay. Yeah, yeah, Luther's quote, which you gave us here. Thank you. I, I, was, I was coming to this. I had it here. But um, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at this point. <clears throat> but your question is, if, if he's right on that and Luther's right on that, how would you handle that expositorily? Well, I can tell you the way I've tried to handle it in the most recent time, and that is that because the battle is raging in um, the realm of human sexuality— where the doctrine of Scripture is challenged at that point probably more than at any other point, at least at, in my lifetime. I mean, the challenges in the 60s were all, you know, does science disprove the Bible or the battle for the Bible with Hal Linsell and, and on all that stuff that was done. But the real battle for the Bible right now is being fought in the realm of human sexuality, about gender, about the nature of family and everything else. <clears throat> well, I could have decided— because I wanted to step into that, that I would uh, try and deal with it topically, that I would announce we're going to talk about such and such. But I didn't want to do that. And so I decided what I want to do is I'm going to, and with the concurrence of my elders, I'm going to preach through the second half of Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, it gave me the opportunity to expand the Scriptures and, and address the issue. I went from Romans chapter 1 then to Psalm 139 because I wanted again to address the issue of abortion and euthanasia and the loss of life. But I did it in the text, from the text, and I think it is possible to do it that way. And I think it is equally right that we bring the Scriptures to bear upon the issues of life and where there is an obvious um, uh, crisis in a, in a culture or it's the topic of conversation— our, our people have a legitimate right 
to say, Pastor, how does the Bible teach us about this? Or where do we go in the Bible in order to handle this? I hope that's helpful. When, when do we stop, Jeff? Pretty soon. Right yeah. Now. Right now? One. Well, the two people who are standing up will do their question, and then we're done. How's that? Yep. This is a follow-up question on prayer. Um, a lot of times pastors, uh, they, they have a very particular plan for sermon prep. There's something on the calendar. There's a, there's method. There's a process. I have not heard very many pastors talk that way about how they handle their prayer life, especially pastorally. So you give me wisdom on how you schedule that, goals for time each week, what you do when you're praying. How, you know, how do you avoid wasting your time? How do, how do you set um, you know, discipline for yourself in pastoral prayer? Sorry, are you talking about in in public prayer? No, your your, your person, your your time in study. Your, your time uh, praying, for the, praying for the church, praying for the, your uh, ministry in the Word, that, that sort of thing? Well, as I said to the first time, the question was, you know, what would you change? I said I would pray more. So, I mean, I, I haven't changed much from when I became a Christian, and they told me, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And so I do the Murray McShane. So at the moment, we're in numbers and and we're all over the place, and that's how I start my morning, usually before anybody's up and around. And then I commit the day to the Lord. I commit the church to the Lord. I commit this to the Lord. I, I do that. And I seek throughout the day to maintain, if you like, an attitude of communion uh, with Christ and to take the opportunities to uh, pray with and pray for issues that come along. For example, when my assistant came this morning, I could tell she was a little distressed. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, well, I'm just worried about my daughter because she's got a, a big exam. And so we just prayed. We prayed for her. We prayed for that and, and, and moved on. I'm a pretty undisciplined person, I have to tell you. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, me- I'm not a mytholo- methodology guy. I'm, I'm, and even when I preach, you can see that as well. I mean, the best I've got is a kind of Venn diagram approach, where, you know, you get circles that are all spinning around, and somewhere in the middle, there might be something worth talking about. Some of the other guys are linear in their progression, and they're able to develop things, and their, their minds are ordered in a certain way. And I think that's true of a lot of, a lot of my life, including my prayer life. I use the Diary of Private Prayer by at Bailey, and um, I use the Valley of Vision, and I use everything that I can try and help to stimulate me, not just to keep saying the same things over and over again to God. Finally. I was going to ask, what method or plan have you found the most, <laughs> yeah, most beneficial for reading through the Bible? Oh, so I just told you. Yeah, Murray McShane. Um, and there are lots of ways to do that. I mean, um, but that, that, has just, that has just fit with, uh, it's just, we have it on our Truthful Life website, and uh, it's also been the way I've operated for a long time. Um, but it's not a, I'm not a slave to it either. I'm not a slave to it. It's a, it's a help to, to keep me on track, but sometimes I break away from it, and we'll be reading perhaps, uh, uh, you know, just in, in a book that I'm, uh, I'm, you know, pondering, 
And so that will be a sidebar from it. But I think it is important for having said that if you are an an ill-disciplined person as I am, then I have to make rods for my own back. I have to, I have to create a framework that, that helps me so that I feel a sense of duty to it. And I don't worry about whether I'm blessed or not blessed. I just I, I expect to be blessed. But if I don't have a great surge of blessing—I don't usually have a great surge of blessing when I brush my teeth either. And so, there are certain things that we do because we should do and because God has promised it to us as a means of grace, both in prayer, in the reading of Scripture, in the fellowship of God's people, in the experience of suffering, in dealing with disappointment, and so on. All these things are melded into it. And it's often, I think, as we sit down to read the Bible, that many of those things then are, are clarified for us. I hope that's helpful. Let me just commit us to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray for these men as they go home now in a matter of hours that the places to which they return will be for them the occasion and opportunity of making fresh discoveries of your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the fact that we are the body of Christ and members of it by your amazing grace and goodness. Watch over us this night, we pray. Bring us here in safety and bless us for your namesake, we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Alistair Begg from Truth For Life, and you're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.